Same Soul Productions presents The Rome Dialogue, Episode 8, The Pantheon. Our pacing and recording may not be the same as when you're actually there, so feel free to stop and pause when you need to. We won't be offended. The Pantheon is by far the most intact of all ancient Rome structures. Unlike so many other temples that fell out of use at Rome's low point, the Pantheon has been used almost constantly since its construction. We'll start outside the square with the obelisk in the middle. This is a good time to talk about these obelisks that you've seen all over the city. They were actually brought here from Egypt as a way to display Rome's power over one of the most ancient empires in the world. Originally, there were hundreds of these obelisks built in Egypt, but so many of them have been looted by every culture that ever controlled Europe that there are now more standing in Rome than in all of Egypt. They would be loaded up onto ships and then sent across the Mediterranean. From time to time, obelisks are still found in Roman shipwrecks at the bottom of the Mediterranean. That's crazy. This one was originally dedicated to the Egyptian goddess Isis. Like we talked about in the general history episode, Romans absorbed whatever worked about other cultures into their own, and that included gods. Conquered people were allowed to keep their old religion and gods as long as they also worshipped the emperor. This is why, you know, Jews were such a problem. By the end of the Roman Empire, there were upwards of 3,000 gods of varying degrees of importance. The Pantheon was originally built by Caesar Augustus, who was the nephew of Julius Caesar, and by Marcus Agrippa, who was the son-in-law of Augustus. And they did this in 27 BC. After a few tire fires, it was time to rebuild, which is exactly what Emperor Hadrian did in 120 AD. Like the Temple of Venus and Roma, which we saw in the Forum, Hadrian himself may have personally designed the revised building. Hadrian loved to travel, and he went all over the empire, and he borrowed from the places that he explored, because he was a good Roman. The design is most similar to Greek temples, but rather than being made out of marble blocks, it's brick and concrete, just like the Colosseum. The dome isn't very impressive from the outside, but it's the focal point inside and what makes it one of the most influential buildings in architectural history. It was the inspiration for the Duomo in Florence, which was the building that launched the Renaissance, and Michelangelo's dome at St. Peter's. Even the U.S. Capitol building is based on this design. The dome is exactly as tall as it is wide, 142 feet. Now enter the portico the entrance of the Pantheon, and its 16 columns. Each of these are 40 feet tall and 15 feet around. Unlike most other ancient columns, which are stacked drums, these 55-ton columns are single pieces that were carved in Egypt and shipped here. Can you even imagine the logistical power at the command of the Romans to be able to pull that off? To have that much stone extracted, shipped up the Nile, put on a larger ship to cross the Mediterranean, moved to a smaller boat to go up the Tiber, and then hauled over land to this spot. One of the few things that isn't the same now as when the building was originally built is the ceiling. The ceiling in here used to be coated in bronze, but that was looted for that canopy that we saw at St. Peter's. Originally, there were statues of Augustus and Marcus Agrippa, the two men who built the building, that flanked the main door. 
Now make your way inside. This dome was the largest in the world until the Renaissance, almost 1,500 years after it was built. Even if you hate geometry and can only remember the first two digits of pi, the perfect symmetry is still powerful. The dome gets lighter and thinner as it goes up. At the base of the concrete is 20 feet thick, but at the top, it's less than five feet thick and made of volcanic pumice stone. The square coffers in the ceiling taper as they go up, directing your eye to the center. But they aren't just for looks. They also reduce the weight of the ceiling. The dummies back in the medieval ages didn't know how the ancients were able to pull off building this dome, so they made up a story. They assumed that the Romans had put a giant mound of dirt inside the building and piled it up so that the dome could be poured over that. And then the dirt was then laced with gold coins so that the poor people of the city would come move out all the dirt while they were looking for the gold. The real story is way less interesting. They used wooden scaffolding and wooden molds because that's how you build a building. At the very top is the oculus. It's 30 feet across, and it's it's the building's only source of light. You know what happens when it rains? Everybody gets wet. Whoa. With all this talk of architecture, they're probably the only ones. The floor is designed to slope outward to drains along the periphery. That 1,800-year-old floor is the, also the original, although in a ship of thesis kind of way. Almost all of this building is the same as it was when it was originally built. And that's probably my favorite part and what makes the Pantheon one of my favorite places in the entire world. The continuity from ancient Rome to Catholicism. In the year 300, you could be killed for being a Christian. But by the year 400, you could be killed for not being a Christian. Constantine switched to Christianity largely as a political move and the people followed. This Pantheon for all the gods had statues of gods that they just hot swapped out for statues of saints. This is why Catholics have patron saints at all. It's an inherited quality from Roman polytheism. The church changed the name of the building to Basilica of Mary and Martyrs. From all gods to all the martyrs. For example, the main niche directly across from the entrance housed a statue of Jupiter, which was replaced with a statue of Mary. Now there's an altar with a smaller picture of Mary and baby Jesus. And as Italy transitioned to a more secular state, new memorials were placed here as well. To the left of the main niche is a statue of Madonna and child with a glass display revealing a stone coffin. This is Raphael. The inscription in Latin reads, Here lies Raphael in life nature feared to be outdone by him. In the artist's death she feared that she too would die. The Madonna above the tomb was commissioned by Raphael himself. And to the left of her is the bust of Raphael, who does not look at all like a turtle. We're going to pinball to the other side and back for these next two, so bear with us. On the opposite side of Raphael is the tomb of Victor Emmanuel II, who unified Italy in the late 1800s. You already saw his giant white memorial, but this is where he's actually buried. It has a Roman eagle on top and an inscription about him being the father of the fatherland. Back on the opposite side is his son's tomb, the tomb of Umberto I. While everyone likes Victor Emmanuel, Umberto is more controversial. His wife, Margareta, who also was his first cousin, is buried under him. 
power bottom, anyone? Ew. This margarita, by the way, is the one the pizza is supposedly named after. Mm, delicious. King Umberto didn't love change, though, and was assassinated in 1900. His son ruled for 44 years before turning the country over to Mussolini and then fleeing the country. Apparently, that didn't make him very popular with the common people. And after World War II, the Italians banished any male from that family from ever setting foot on Italian soil again. Eventually, they changed their mind in 2003, but since they came back, they just say dumb things and get themselves in trouble. Throughout the rest of the building, you'll find all sorts of art from 2,000 year history of this building. So look around and have fun.